America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. Welcome to Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our guest is Yalda Hakim, an award-winning foreign correspondent who currently anchors the flagship program Impact with Yalda Hakim on BBC World News. In addition to her presenting duties, Yalda continues to deliver hard-hitting journalism across BBC News in both television and radio. Yalda has reported extensively on the rise and fall of the Islamic State in Iraq. She has traveled to the world's youngest nation, South Sudan, which has been embroiled in a brutal civil war. She reported that more than 4 million people were on the brink of famine in that devastated country. She has also highlighted the plight of people in the secretive state of Eritrea, covered U.S. elections in 2008, 2012, and, and 2020, reported from Turkey following the failed coup attempt, covered the aftermath of the earthquake in Nepal, kidnappings by drug cartels in Mexico, and jihadism in, in Sweden. She has investigated and reported on people trafficking and torture of Ethiopian migrants in Yemen, and following the Bangladesh garment factory collapse, uncovered workers still being put at risk in unsafe premises. Yalda also conducts high-profile interviews with global leaders and public figures. Before joining BBC World News, Yalda was the presenter of SBS Dateline in Australia. In 2018, Yalda launched the Yalda Hakim Foundation for Young Women in partnership with the American University of Afghanistan. The foundation aims to support the professional advancement of exceptionally talented in Afghanistan. Yalda was born in Afghanistan and fled with her family as a result of the Soviet invasion, emigrating to Australia. Today, Yalda joins us to discuss her film, Return of the Taliban, which explores the Taliban of today, what they stand for, and what is at stake in the unfolding catastrophe in Afghanistan. Yalda Hakim, welcome to Battlegrounds. Having been on the receiving end of your hard-hitting questions, I look forward to this role reversal and getting to ask you the questions. So welcome. It's great to see you. Thank you so much, General. It's great to be here. Yalda, your, your documentary provides a window uh, into the lives of Afghans. And, and you, your interviews, I think, really uh, reveal uh, what has occurred in Afghanistan, what's happened in terms of the transformation of Afghanistan or what did happen after 2001. And I'm thinking of your discussion with your friend Masood, you know, who a friend of yours, a photojournalist who was, who was the subject of assassination attempts. And then uh, your interview with a really courageous Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission uh, leader. And she was investigating uh, human rights in Afghanistan, a, a young mother. Uh, she talked about her colleagues who were killed by bombs and so forth. And, and I just wanted to ask you, you know, you, you provide a window into the lives of, of people who were helping to transform the country. What do you want viewers to conclude about the nature of, of Afghanistan's transformation 
between 2001 uh, and just a few weeks ago? You know, General, I, I think that the focus of this war in the last two decades has really been on you know, how things have been wasted or nothing has really been achieved. And, and what I was hoping to really get or get across in this documentary was that the gains that we keep talking about, the fact that I call them the quintessential 9-11 generation. These are people, when we talk about the 9-11 generation, you know, perhaps Americans or the world would see it as in the lens of, of war. But actually, these are people who were Pulitzer Prize winning photographers, who were human rights activists, who took the opportunities that were given to them and, and really made the most of, of the freedoms and gains that they, that they were given. And so I wanted to really capture um, those gains, the 9-11 the, the generation, the, the sort of brilliance of these people. And when we talk about the, the wave of refugees now, I, I often tell people that you are sort of getting the best and brightest of a nation coming your way. These people leave reluctantly. They don't want to leave their homelands. You know, they, they had communities. They had foreign visas in their passports. They didn't want to leave. Shahrazad, for example, um, the human rights activist in my, in my piece, uh, the chairperson of, of the Human Rights Commission, she had several colleagues who were assassinated and she had a foreign visa in her passport. She didn't want to leave. In fact, the State Department and various other groups were pushing her to leave up until the day the Kabul fell. She finally agreed to go because she realized, you know, the Taliban were marching in into the capital. So I suppose what I want people to get out of this is that. When we talk about Afghanistan, it wasn't a lost cause. When we talk about Afghanistan, there were these incredible people that had love for nation and wanted to see Afghanistan go to another level. And, and, and it was on the way there. It wasn't all lost. You know, Yalda, it's, it's heartbreaking to see because there had been this narrative for so long of, you know, it's, it's not worth it. We've wasted so much. And of course, those who you see who are the subjects of your documentary, those who you interview, are, were really people worth defending. The other side of that is really the nature of the enemy. And, and, and because of the heinous, brutal nature uh, of the Taliban and the groups that are affiliated with them, I think that's another reason to have sustained our effort there. But it also points to the future danger, right? The danger of, of the reestablish associated with the reestablishment of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan under Taliban rule. And in your documentary, I think see, these are some of the more fascinating interviews. You have one with Sohail Shaheem, right? This is the, the Taliban spokesman and their, their former envoy to the United Nations. And he is trying hard to reinforce what we hear oftentimes these days that, well, you know, the Taliban has really in mind a more benign form of Sharia. But even, uh, even in that interview with you, he's internally inconsistent and contradictory. And what would you say you want viewers to take away from this documentary in connection with the nature of the Taliban and some of these assumptions some are making that the Taliban will share power, that the Taliban will impose a more benign form of Sharia, maybe have some kind of an inclusive government uh, that 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 would and maybe even be a worthy partner uh, in, in a fight against uh, jihadist terrorist organizations. This seems delusional to me, but what do you think viewers should should, should take away from the interviews you had essentially with, with what I would call the enemy? 
When we talk about uh, the Taliban's role in counterterrorism, I suppose it's wishful thinking, isn't it, that that they they can turn the Taliban into partners? Um, you know, I, I spoke to some friends who are still in Kabul, and they said the night that the Americans withdrew, and we had celebratory gunfire across the city, he said it went on for hours and hours and hours from about one o'clock in the morning till the early hours of the morning. He said the children were frightened. They're all hiding. They're un, uh, unsure about what was actually going on. And in many ways, it felt like even though people spoke about Afghanistan being this violent nation, you know, General, there's a softness about Kabul. There's a, there's something gentle about it. You know, there, there's something gentle about the morning breeze in Kabul. And, and even though when you can sense that maybe things are becoming sinister or there might be an attack, there's something gentle about the Afghan people. And, and you know, often I've heard this phrase that um, Afghans like to fight, but they don't like to kill. And, and, and you know, and, and I think in many ways, I suppose when we look at the Taliban and what they are today and the violence that has been brought in just from those kinds of acts, I think we also need to understand that the Taliban, from my experience, are not one homogenous sort of entity. What Sohail Shaheen was telling me was, I suppose, what um, the Vice President Amrullah Saleh had, had said to me, and that was that they have become savvier at deceiving and, and that they'd gone through some kind of very complex PR machine and knew the right wording to use for Western media. Now, when I went to Kabul and met with the commander, um, the, the, the field commander, the frontline commander, I asked him about public executions, for example, and he said, well, of course we would have public executions. Of course we had stoning if a woman was accused of, of, of adultery. Of course we would amputate hands and feet. Of course we want to go back to the 90s because what was wrong with what we had? And so even now, when I asked Sahel Shaheen about house-to-house -house raids and going after people and revenge attacks, and he says, that's not our policy. And I say to him, but that's what's happening. He says, yes, but that, that is not our policy. And so you, you realize, actually, that there's the Taliban sort of leadership, and then there's the foot soldiers, the, the young men on the ground with uh, weapons running around the country, feeling very much empowered um, and, and feeling like, okay, now they have control over the city again. And perhaps, I don't know if the leadership can bring them in. You know, you, you talked about really the self-delusion and wishful thinking. Uh, one part of the documentary that I think brings this out brilliantly is this, is your interview with uh, Milana, you know, this Taliban uh, official terrorist uh, who we convinced, we forced really the Afghan government to release from prison as part of what I would describe as the capitulation agreement uh, with, the, with the Taliban uh, in, in 2020. And of course, he went right back to the battlefield. Could you talk about, about that interview and what you think viewers should conclude, not only about you know, the nature of the Taliban and, and, and this, you know, this, this brutal uh, terrorist organization that's in control of Afghanistan now, but also just by the, you know, the, the, the lead up to the collapse in Afghanistan and, and what it tells us about you know, this sort of concession and the other concessions that were made uh, by, by America on our way out of the, out of the war. I think one thing that was clear was that the Afghan government and the Afghan allies and partners were left out of the peace process. This was a deal that was struck 
you know, between the United States and the Taliban. And, and there were certain conditions and, and agreements when you go back to the Doha Agreement, you realize it was the United States telling the Taliban, don't turn this into a terrorist haven, you know, break ties with Al Qaeda, don't allow it to become a threat to us. And then, you know, we're happy to withdraw. And as long as you meet those conditions and the Afghan government and the Afghan people were very much left out of, of the process. And so this whole pressure to release 5,000 prisoners, we saw the result of that. And we continue to see the result where today, very deadly Al Qaeda and ISIS fighters have been released from, from these prisons. And, and we see the kinds of attacks like the one at the airport that we saw just last week. Um, the Afghan government, the vice president, the president himself, in my conversations with them, have said they've expressed so much anger about the 5,000 prisoners uh, that are being released. And we saw that in Maulana, a very dangerous um, a Taliban commander who ended up uh, fighting in, in Lashkagar and in Helmand. Uh, he went back to the battlefield. Um, and even in those final days of, of the war, he was there leading about 300 men in the fight there. Um, and this is uh, someone who you know, we were told, well, needs to be released because he's, in, you know, an innocent Taliban fighter and he is not going to carry on fighting. When in fact, that wasn't the case. He said to me, I don't care if it takes me 40 years or 200 years, we will not stop until we overthrow this government. And it really exposes, I think, what you already brought up, the kind of the hypocrisy and, and fraud of the Taliban political commission uh, in Doha. And I, I think uh, Amrullah Saleh had said something like um, that, that it's, uh, he said that it, it's really just a veneer. He said the group in Doha, Doha I think, are a, a facade of a very dark reality of the Taliban. But I, I think that for years, going back to the Obama administration, we aided and abetted the Taliban in creating, right, this false veneer uh, of a more benign Taliban. We actually, you know, in many ways, I think, conjured up the enemy we would prefer in Afghanistan uh, <laughs> rather than confront the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the actual an enemy. Uh, what are your thoughts about, about the, you know, what happened in Doha, uh, the whole you know, so-called peace process going back to, to 2010? And, and what do you think you know, viewers, your, the viewers of your documentary ought to know about, about those that, with whom uh, Zal Khalilzad um, and then Secretary Pompeo uh, negotiated with and then concluded uh, that deal that I think in, in many ways in February 2020 sealed the fate of the Afghan people. You, you sort of talked about what, what we wanted the Taliban to be. And you remember the phrase, good Taliban, bad Taliban. Okay. You know, we use that so much. All of these sorts of phrases over the years, you know, where we would try to box them or try to understand them. I've spoken to people here um, when I've interviewed them on my show, and they've said, actually, it's all just one ideology. They just know how to sell themselves in different sorts of ways. They're, they're, they've become savvier than they were in the 90s. But in fact, what we will see play out in Afghanistan is, is frankly, um, a totalitarian society is what it's going to become. And, and sadly, while maybe tens of thousands of people have fled, there's still 38 million people who will have to live under the, the banner of, of the Taliban. And, and they won't sort of have the, the, the freedoms and opportunities that these last 20 years gave them. But I think what happened in, in, in Doha is, is 
you know, again, that the Afghans themselves were left out of the process. A deal was struck uh, between the United States under the, the leadership of Secretary Pompeo and Zameh Khalizad, and they worked out that as long as, for as long as the Taliban are not a threat to us and the homeland, you know, then, then they can, I suppose, take over the country or this government can collapse and it won't sort of make that much of a difference. Although if you speak to Zalmay Khalizad, he'll, he will say that he tried to reach out to Ashraf Ghani and they were being very stubborn and they didn't want, you know, the Afghan elite let down the Afghan people. But I think ultimately, um, as you say, the seal, uh, the, this sort of the fate of the Afghan people was sort of it was already sealed at, at, during those Doha talks. The, the Afghan nation was never really given a chance. And I think ultimately the government were, was weak and they did let down their people. There were so many incredible people in that country who had a love for nation and, and wanted to see Afghanistan turn into something quite extraordinary. In, in your, our mutual friend, Saad Mosseni, through Tolo News, you can see the kind of incredible progress that they've made and you know, various other people. And, and to sort of say that Afghanistan should have been a Denmark, as you put it, or, or one of these other nations within 20 years was also unfair. You know, we've been in Korea for 70 years. You know, the, the US still has a presence in Germany, for example. You know, so to, to sort of give a time frame to it. And someone said to me, you shouldn't be sort of surprised about the withdrawal. And, and actually, the finger of blame shouldn't just be on Biden and, and Trump. This is something that administrations going back as far as the Obama administration wanted out, you know, the surge. And then we saw the, the timeline that was given to the Taliban. And, and you know, we hear these these phrases of, of you know, we've got we've got sort of um, watches and they've got time um, that they were not going anywhere and they were going to stay until they won this war. And they were very clear about their strategy and, and what they wanted as a result of this. They wanted the Islamic Emirates. They, was going, they were going to fight to the death till they got it. What was our strategy? What was the policy of the United States and the West and the allies over the years? Was there a clear-cut strategy? And did the Afghan um, government and, and, and the Afghan National Army understand what that was? Was that, was that sort of, um, you know, joint in terms of what NATO and the West wanted? We heard so many phrases and slogans, nation building, hearts and minds, you know, blood and treasure over the years. But, but did that actually ever translate into anything? Yeah, I think you know, paradoxically, we took a short-term approach to a long-term problem. We kept saying, hey, we're leaving. Okay, now we're really leaving. Now we're really leaving. Well, it turned out to be a 20-year war, but it wasn't a 20-year war. It was a one-year war fought 20 times over. And and I think that that the effect right, of, of us saying we're leaving all the time really resulted in a, in a wide range of behaviors, hedging behavior, and so forth. And of course, the last administration to deal with this is the Biden administration. And I think that what we've heard from them is astounding as well, that they had no agency. They couldn't have reversed, you know, this capitulation agreement of the Trump administration, which I, I kind of reject. And I think, in fact, the Biden administration may have even gone further in empowering the Taliban on our way out. One of the interviews that you do is with a, with a young recruit. I think it's a particularly moving interview in the documentary who said that, hey, I, I, I'm going to take I'm going to take risks. I may have to make a sacrifice, but I'm doing it for future generations. He must've been, I think, what, 18 years old or something. And, and uh, a new recruit being trained as the Taliban were taking over large portions of the country. You know, the narrative we've heard from the Biden administration has been one of, you know, the Afghans didn't fight hard. Of course, as you know, over 60,000 Afghans gave their lives uh, to preserve the freedoms they've enjoyed 
since since 2001. Uh, could you could you really talk about this young recruit and and uh, and other Afghans who you know who were willing to fight and who did fight and make sacrifices and 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 who let them down and um, and who who failed them? Yeah, uh, this young man that you talk about, um, you know, it, it was quite extraordinary meeting him. So young, 18 years old, far from home, uh, getting trained up, uh, you know, at this academy, ready to go out on the front lines. And he talked to me about, you know, just like any young person, he wanted to go to university or he wanted to travel ab- abroad. But actually for him, the freedom that he wanted for his country and, and that he didn't see his values being in line with with that of the Taliban. And this was a young man from the south of the country. He was from a Pashtun household, uh, you know. And so, you know, there's often talk about, you know, ethnic warfare within Afghanistan or, or the administration has talked about civil war and tribalism. But here is a young man who one would think was of the same ethnic group as the Taliban, but, you know, fighting and training and learning alongside other fellow Afghans for the sake of his country and really believing in his cause, really believing that the training that he was going to get was for a reason, for the sake of his country, for the sake of the future generations. He spoke to me about his mother. I spoke to his mother on the phone. They didn't want to film it, but she said to me, I'm so proud of him, you know, and and I I don't want to see him come back in a body bag, but I'm proud of why he wanted to join. And I'm proud of the training that he's gotten. And I'm proud of the uniform that he has. You know, I interviewed a, a translator as well, and I, in sort of the days following the, um, and he worked with the U.S. Uh, military. He was on a base. He was quite well known, and he was working between the Afghan forces and 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 the Americans. And there was something that he said to me, which st- really has stuck with me. He said to me, "I'm burning my uniform right now." I'm burning all my documents right now. As we speak, the Taliban have taken over this city and I'm burning everything. And there were so many households and people that I was speaking to from the military and translators and people at the American University of Afghanistan and anyone who had an association with America who were suddenly wiping out their social media, who were burning their uniforms, who were burning their documents. Students that I support through my foundation at the American University of Afghanistan were burying their documents in their in, in their gardens. They were what they couldn't burn, they were burying. And and there was something about that that was so that really stuck with me about the real fear, everything that we went into to deliver for that country and the promise. I mean, so many of these people have said to me, we stuck our necks out on a whim based on a promise of America that, you know, we will finance you, we will inspire you, we will shelter you, we will fund you, come with us. It's a project that we're doing together, Project Afghanistan. And in the end, they betrayed us, they abandoned us. And there was that feeling right across the board. Every single phone call I've been taking in the last few weeks is, why? Why why did this need to happen? It didn't need to get this way. It didn't need to be this way. Sure, you want to leave. We've known for a long time you want to leave. But did you need to leave in this way where we feel completely humiliated? You know, it's really perverse. It's a perverse, I think, reversal of morality. And and, uh, I think it was extraordinary several months ago when that letter was leaked from Secretary Blinken to President Ghani saying, well, you need to do more for peace. Uh, 
<laughs> I wonder why he didn't write a similar letter uh, to, to Haibatula Akinzada. And when while Ambassador Khalilzad was conspiring, I guess, with Hamid Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah against the sitting president of Afghanistan, uh, while that was while that was happening, uh, we were weakening the Afghan government, weakening its, its legitimacy. And we were actually partnering with the Taliban and advocating for a Taliban say uh, in the future government of Afghanistan in, in what they hoped would be this sort of inclusive coalition government. And so I, I think that what this did is it set up uh, the Afghan people, Afghan armed forces and the government for a rapid collapse. And I wanted to ask you, what do you attribute the rapid collapse to? I remember in the documentary, you know, the scene where you're driving through Kabul on the way to see the vice president. And you talk about you know, being stuck in traffic and the eerie feeling that you have that something's changing in the city. And and uh, and and did you have an idea, any idea while you were shooting that the Taliban takeover could have happened so quickly? And and what would you attribute the collapse to? Yeah, not at all. You know, um, people ask me, and and I think that it's going to that military base, speaking to all the people who. Like I said, the Masoods or the Shaharazads in that film who have the foreign visas to get out but choosing to stay within the communities, even though they are looking down the barrel of a gun every day, they face the threat of targeted killings and they face the threat of, of an explosion. They face the threat of, of death every day. They chose to stay. They chose to fight because... They believed that that the state would would remain, that the institutions would not collapse, that the, you know, weirdly that that the security blanket that the United States had provided them, even with two and a half or three and a half thousand troops, uh, was sufficient. There was there was a security blanket with that. They didn't view the United States as occupiers. You know, they didn't view the United States as a nuisance or a presence that they didn't want. They saw it as a security blanket for themselves. And they've told me this, you know, just the small, they're not present, we don't see them. You know, the Afghan National Army are the ones fighting the war. We don't see the presence of the Americans in the same way as we did in the early days. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of behind the scenes now. And, 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 and in the provinces and in the villages, there's, there's sort of air support but not no longer in Kabul, no longer in the major cities. We're living our own life, and and we're 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 sort of we've taken this country into our own hands, and so I suppose there there was this sense of again uh, the the kind of betrayal of 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 where they are now. Even even uh, General McMaster, their presence in the airport in the last days gave some kind of hope to people that they felt safe and as soon as that last c-17 left and the last soldier left there really was finally that's when i got the sense from many of my afghan friends and contacts it just suddenly dawned dawned on them that the lights have been turned out and there's a darkness now in in kabul and across afghanistan and we are alone i mean to think that even when you know nato allies and the u.s couldn't put step foot out of the airport and they were they were sort of held within the gates of of the the, the military side of, of of the airport. Afghans still felt protected, and so when that flight took off, there was this sense that this dark curtain has been drawn, and now we will be forgotten. You know, y'all, you mentioned I think an important factor in our self defeat. I would say our surrender and self defeat in in Afghanistan was 
just a misframing of the war, right? This narrative of the graveyard of empires, as if America was there for imperial purposes, and 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 and, and a failure to recognize that we were fighting, enabling really uh, Afghan forces to bear the brunt of the fight against really the enemies of all humanity, uh, and especially now the Afghan people. Uh, what do you think led to that fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of the conflict? Is there more that your profession might have done or any of us might have done uh, to help uh, help citizens in the democracies that were sustaining this effort in Afghanistan to understand better the nature of the conflict, what is was at stake there, and what the costs of this kind of a precipitous withdrawal, uh, what, what costs we and the Afghan people would incur? I think... Um... As you know, it was mission accomplished three months after the war began in Afghanistan in, in October 2001. And there really was, as you say, this is this felt like a one-year war that was fought 20 times over rather than kind of a policy or an understanding of, of really investing in Afghanistan. It always, in the reporting or, or the understanding of Afghanistan, it was really kind of the less sexier of the two wars between Iraq and, and Afghanistan or the one that was sort of forgotten. And what's been really interesting was it, that this administration took a forgotten war and put it in uh, sort of American households on the front of newspapers and into their, their sort of television screens, the horror that we saw unfold in those final days at the airport. And and when, when that sort of, you know, American um, Air Force plane, military plane took off from that runway and people were literally falling, plunging to their deaths. I think it almost summed up the, the sort of the, the tragedy of Afghanistan, where ultimately, you know, a plane full of American military personnel and diplomats were leaving and the Afghans were plunging to their deaths and being left behind somewhere that, that they no longer felt was theirs, that, that they built something over, over two decades. And now this was a land, a country, a place that they no longer recognized. And you know, this this whole notion that that this is a, a, a graveyard of empires, like I said, the Afghan people in my conversations with them didn't view Americans as as occupiers. The only people who are now selling this as a graveyard of, of empires are the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's general command issued a statement yesterday congratulating the Taliban for their historic victory and their, their historic win. And we saw, um, you know, some video emerge that, that showed um, uh, the head of security of Al-Qaeda, Amin al-Haq, apparently in Nangaha, uh, you know, in eastern Afghanistan. So Pulling up in his white SUV to a... A, a welcoming welcome. crowd, yeah, right. Absolutely, to a hero's welcome. And so really it's been the jihadi community now who have seen this as a graveyard of empires. It's being sold that way. It's being hailed that way. It's being sort of, you know, celebrated in that way that this is what we've done. And, and Zabi Al-Mujahid said that in his statements after the withdrawal, after the 31st, he said, if you come here with bad intentions, we're going to send you away and it doesn't matter which superpower you are. This is what happens when people come here. We are the graveyard of empires. It's it's fed into that narrative more so than, than anything else. What, what has happened has fed into the jihadi narrative. And it's just a trope. It's it's ahistorical. And, you know, I, I think that we've seen kind of the opposite of, of reality in, in Washington, right? So, uh, for example, we heard that we didn't want to extend the August 31st deadline because it would have increased risk 
to U.S. soldiers and the U.S. military. But instead, you know, we're leaving U.S. civilians and, and other civilians, civilians behind as if maybe I guess the U.S. military will only be committed to places that are safe in the future. I mean, I just don't understand really the, the logic uh, behind leaving people behind. Um, and you were part of an effort to, to really help people escape. Right. And and so I'd like to ask you, maybe would you share some of your, you know, some of your actions to do that? What you what you gleaned from you know, the chaotic environment associated with the, the the incomplete evacuation, and then and then what happens next in terms of this humanitarian catastrophe that we've seen unfold, really mainly in Kabul, but I'm sure this is happening in Herat, in Mazar, uh, in Jalalabad, uh, in Kandahar as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, what's been extraordinary is, you know, some people have described it as the Saigon moment. Some people have described it as the Dunkirk moment. You know, I, I think what it showed actually is that for the Afghan people, certainly, that for all the disappointment that they felt towards America's political class, there were some extraordinary Americans who came out and assisted in the effort of evacuation. Private individuals who felt you know, quite deeply hurt. Um, and at least it has been quite a, a painful moment for so many people who have been invested in Afghanistan, like yourself, who believed in Afghanistan, who believed in the cause. Um, so, uh, you know, a group of us, like so many other uh, individuals, came together to assist people who were part of the brightest and the best, but we knew weren't on any real lists of people to evacuate. And, um, we got a bunch of journalists out. We got a bunch of um, students from the American University of Afghanistan out. We got some civil society people out, um, and and really, and some artists. Uh, we we helped evacuate, but we were really part of this small window because it registered for me on the kind of when, Thursday before the fall of Kabul. Uh, so it might have been about the twelfth of August or the eleventh of August, where after Mazar fell. And then when Helman fell, I thought, if Helman falls, then Kandahar falls, and that's the road to Kabul. You know, that's when it's game over. And that's when we started to mobilize. And I, I said to myself, we've got at best till this weekend, and, and, and sort of at worst, Kabul could fall even sooner. So all the intelligence reports that were coming out, you know, earlier in that week saying you know, there's 90 days till the fall of Kabul. In fact, I thought that was premature because I suppose maybe I, it was, I was being naive. I'd just come back from Afghanistan. I'd spoken to these soldiers. I'd spoken to people like the vice president who had were remaining defiant. We're not going to surrender. We've got this, you know, 180,000 um, strong force um, and, and we're going to go out there and we're going to take on the Taliban. We're going to fight and, and take back our country. And then, of course, you, you remember the, the 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 demonstrations that we saw across all of the various cities in Afghanistan where people were in support of the Afghan National Army coming out and, and chanting and expressing that they didn't want the Taliban uh, to, to, to take over the country. So we, we, we swung into action. I think we got a little bit lucky because we're almost ahead of the, the pack. We swung into action on the, the Thursday and the Friday and we're trying to move people out by the Sunday. In fact, we were ready to get out on the Sunday. And then, of course, Kabul fell. 
and then there were no flights. And so we managed to mobilize some people and, and get them out to Albania. And we've got a group of, of um, students, journalists, civil society uh, in Albania at the moment. And, and I, I we interviewed the Albanian prime minister and he said, you know, we're a poor nation, but we were Afghans once too. And we looked out to the international community for help. And, and at the time we felt the world looked away from us. How can we you know, look away now. And 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 perhaps, you know, richer nations don't have memory. We have memory and, and we understand history. And so that's why we are going to be generous and take in as many Afghans as we possibly can. And so I, I think that that is one snapshot of what's going on where private individuals have managed to take out certain groups and certain people. Having said that, 38 million people remain uh, in the country. Pakistan has closed its borders for the time being and not letting out, letting any more Afghans. They talk about the 3 million Afghans that they've had for decades and they don't want any more Afghans entering their, their country. Iran is now closing off their borders. In many ways, so many Afghans say to me, we feel like we're in, we're in a prison. You know, we've been trapped and we're waiting for these international flights to, to open up. But there does feel like something more profound and greater is happening here with this mass exodus of, of Afghans at this sort of turning point. I mean, as you know, Afghanistan has had a tumultuous, rocky sort of four decades. But this feels like the most uncertain time. This feels like sort of a time like no other, not like when the Soviets left, not like during the civil war, not like when the Taliban took over, and certainly not like um, when the Taliban fell in 9-11. This for so many people now feels like, you know, tens of thousands of people want to get out and they probably won't look back. You know, Yalda, this, I, I think what I'd like to hear is, is your thoughts on what does happen next, right? I think we're recognizing now that lost wars have consequences. And of course, we're seeing some of the security consequences you mentioned, uh, you know, that a victory for the Taliban in Afghanistan is a victory for Al-Qaeda and other jihadist terrorists. Uh, it's, I, 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 I couldn't believe the images, right, of, of, these, uh, of these terrorists uh, who had the most, uh, you know, the most advanced kit, uh, who were outfitted by Pakistan's ISI with, uh, you know, the Gulf uh, donations that flow in to the ISI to build uh, this. I'm talking about this Brigade 313 uh, that uh, that is an Al Qaeda, an Al Qaeda brigade, essentially within the Taliban that took over the airport, of course, giving the lie to this idea that these are separate organizations. So we know that we have a greater threat from jihadist terrorism. We're just seeing the beginning, I think, of a of obviously a humanitarian catastrophe, just the beginning of it. And of course, there'll be political ramifications associated with the belief that we just don't have the will, right, to defend ourselves or, uh, or to see through missions that have significant consequences for us and, and others around the world. What, what do you see happening next, right? I, I think that some Americans think, well, that was really bad, you know, that, 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 that uh, horrible evacuation during which our, I think our military did an amazing job with a terrible mission, right, under tremendous constraints. I mean, the, the, the forces that were there, uh, but, uh, but it was, it was, a, it was a catastrophe in terms of that, that evacuation itself, but that's just the beginning. So what do you think happens next? What are you most concerned about, about the future? Yeah, I'm, I'm most concerned, I think, about Afghanistan being forgotten like it was in the 90s. And someone said something very clever to me the other day. They said that in 1996, you had to be pretty imaginative uh, to think that Afghanistan would become a terrorist haven and then 9-11 would happen. 
In 2021, you have to have amnesia, you know, to think that that's not how it would play out again. And and really, I think that there's an attempt by governments to rush to legitimize the Taliban now. And, and there's an attempt to work with them in, in, in sort of counterterrorism. We saw the horrific drone strike that took place in the center of Kabul just two days ago, where 10 Afghan civilians were killed. Uh, the, the head of the household worked in the Afghan army. He was an interpreter for the US military and they had an SIV to come and travel to the United States. And that's the house the drone fell on. And seven of their children were killed, the youngest age two. So my concern is, you know, who gave the coordinates? There's a lot of questions that need to be asked about, you know, who was working with who to give the US the coordinates for that strike? You know, how much can the Taliban be a reliable partner in terms of counterterrorism. You know, they sort of talk about maintaining security at the moment and there not being any blasts. And, and so many Kabul residents say to me, yes, because that's, they were doing it. And, and that's why there is security now in terms of bomb blasts and attacks. And we're not seeing that on that same scale. It's because, well, the Taliban were behind it. And and, and so the, the, the focus now being on, on ISIS-K, I mean, my, my greatest concern is that this war is now taking a whole other shape and phase. And, and that's the concern of so many Afghans I speak to. Where is this now going? Are we just going to be a land forgotten where drone strikes happen night and day because of an attempt to strike out ISIS and the Taliban become the partners in, in counterterrorism? And, and sort of the, the, the accountability or holding them accountable doesn't take place because of the desperation to keep our streets in New York or London safe, you know, and, and, and so that we do see a collapse of a state again, where the economy economy, you know, completely falls apart. And, and people, we have the, sort of a famine and a drought already that's taking place. We see more of a mass exodus and we pe see people turning up on the, the sort of shores of Europe and the United States seeking asylum. And really, I mean, I, I was speaking to someone from the UN the other day and I asked him, do you think this was imposed? The humanitarian was in, uh, crisis has been imposed because it was avoidable, you know, with, with sort of a handful of troops or, or a different strategy, we're now seeing a, a sort of a catastrophe unfolding where it could, we could see the collapse of a state. We could see Afghanistan becoming a haven for terrorism again. We could see a huge humanitarian crisis, all of which could have been avoided. And you, know, maybe it's past time to stop pretending, right? Maybe we should stop pretending that the Taliban is going to be a partner with us. Maybe we should stop pretending that there's a bold line between the Taliban and, and jihadist terrorist organizations. Maybe we should stop pretending that, that this was just some sort of rural militia movement rather than one that was supported by the Pakistanis and the ISI and the Russians and the Iranians and, and recognize uh, that, that the future of Afghanistan uh, can't be an uh, Afghanistan under Taliban rule. And, and what I'm worried about, Yalda, is what you just said, is that there's going to be this rush to legitimize the Taliban, to turn a, a blind eye to their true nature, and to restart aid in a way that seems to be neutral. But there's a false nobility associated with that neutrality, because, of course, the Taliban will do everything they can to capture and weaponize uh, that, that aid, for example. So I, I'd like to, to maybe just conclude with, is there an alternative future? You know, you interviewed Amrullah Saleh, someone who I... Have tremendous respect for a lot of Americans didn't like him because he was so brash. <laughs> but I loved him for it, right? He never, never sugarcoated anything. He's been utterly consistent 
uh, since 2001 in terms of his commitment uh, to prevent the Taliban from taking over. He's now leading uh, a, a resistance movement in, in the Panjshir Valley. Um, it, when, 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 you, when I hear we need to talk with the Taliban about the future of Afghanistan, why don't we, aren't there other Afghans who we should talk to about the future of Afghanistan? What do you think the alternatives are and how should we be thinking about the future of the country? I think what's happened, sadly and unfortunately, is that we are now left with the Taliban. They are in power. And when we talk about even an inclusive government, it doesn't seem like any of these other Afghan players are going to be part of that. So much has been promised by the Taliban to their own different factions and elements that I think it's going to be a very difficult task now for the international community to support and recognize the movement in Panjshir, for example, or to try and prop up or support any of the other elements in the country. And I think the other thing that the international community needs to be mindful of is who are the remaining embassies in the country? Who are the nations and states who have said or expressed interest in having friendlier relationships with the, with the Taliban, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, the Pakistanis. They're the ones that haven't left the, the country. It's almost like Afghanistan has become a gift, you know, uh, to, to, the, to these countries. I mean, the, the Chinese, for example, gave virtually a state visit uh, to, to the Taliban a month before their takeover and expressed that they were happy uh, to, to work with them. And in return, the Taliban said, the issue of the Uyghurs is their internal matter. It's not, it's not an, uh, you know, an issue that, that is, is of concern for the treatment of Uyghurs. It's an internal Chinese matter. And so I suppose the agreement, if you read between the lines, is you know, as long as you don't make noise, too much noise about the one million Uyghurs in, in a detention facility and say that we need to do something about those Muslims, we will happily turn a blind eye to whatever's going on in your country and supply you with the aid and the assistance that you also need. So the question now becomes, even though the Taliban are desperate to be legitimized by the international community, have they become so savvy that previous foes have now become friends, namely the Iranians, the, the, the Russians, even India? You know, a month before uh, the, the fall of Kabul, the Indians expressed that perhaps we could work with the Taliban. If there is security and stability in the country, perhaps we could work together. This is now a Taliban that are far savvier, far sharper, far more aware of what the messaging needs to be and what they need to do in order to get legitimacy, counterterrorism being one of them. So portraying ISIS-K, a small uh, you know, offshoot of, of uh, the Islamic State as a big problem for the West. And, and look, they went straight into the airport and they blew you know, themselves up. And in two years, we didn't see any US service uh, men killed. And now we have 13 killed. And, and, and you know, this is ISIS and it wasn't us. Uh, so counterterrorism being one factor. And also this concern that perhaps you know, if China is... is turning uh, Afghanistan into an arena of great power competition, then it forces the Western world to, to engage with them as well, rather than, than uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, discard them or turn them into a prior state. You know, it's, it's, really, it's really astonishing the degree to which uh, your documentary and those who you've interviewed 
you know, really draw into question the fundamental you know, misunderstanding of the war uh, and, and, uh, and what has become really the con- conventional wisdom about the war, right? That, that we didn't achieve anything. Uh, that that, that you know, the, the Taliban would be a more benign organization, that there's a bold line between them and other jihadist terrorist organizations, you know, that there would be no profound consequences, essentially, from disengage, disengaging from Afghanistan. I just want to thank you for, for, for your reporting over the years and uh, for your, your humanitarian actions, your foundation, what you've done to help get people out in recent weeks, and, and for joining us. And, and on behalf of the, the Hoover institution. Y'all, I want to thank you for helping us learn more about what is still a battleground uh, important to building a, a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, General. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content please visit hoover.org.